I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2 as we inch our way through our study in this second chapter. And um, it's more or less intentional that I'm moving slowly uh, because there's a lot of condensed notions here and a lot of things that require some explanation. And um, also I just want us to get something of a flavor for the ministry of of Jeremiah, the times in which he lived and uh, the concerns that are upon his heart. And um, in this second chapter, as we have noted, uh, he is bringing God's lawsuit against a rebellious people, a people who have forsaken the Lord and they've viewed out for themselves cistern, broken cisterns that can hold no water forsaking the fountain of living water and that's certainly a picture of the idolatry that they had given themselves over to Um, that the cities of Judah were filled uh, with idols and um, Jeremiah is sent to uh, call the people to repentance and to come to acknowledge their sin to see their ingratitude towards the Lord who in times past has dealt so well with them and kindly with them and um, they have defiled the land they have uh, uh, failed to live up to the covenant relationship they have broken the covenant and um, as a result God's going to come with judgment upon uh, sinning Judah But one of the things we noted last time is the fact that it's not just that he sets out the general list of accusations and the crimes that they've committed, but he gives a lot of what we call specifications, aggravating circumstances that uh, really highlight the evil of the times. So though it gets a little bit uh, distressing sometimes to look at the sins of the people, um, looking at the evil of the times in which Jeremiah lived, we're going to get a little bit more of the same this evening. And I'm going to direct your attention to um, verses 29 uh, down to verse 32. You know what a technical name is for the portions of scripture that uh, we preach on when we you know, cordoning off 29 to 32 from the larger text. The technical name is a pericope. How about that? And uh, I say that because it's in all the reading I do uh, in this pericope, in this section we're about to study. And uh, I sometimes think in terms of pericope as a result of that. If you ran across it in a book, you'd probably pronounce it pericope. I always pronounce it pericope because that's what it looks like. P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E, pericope. But actually the correct pronunciation for all the people that teach in seminaries is a pericope. And so this is our pericope. This is the portion of scripture we have cordoned off from the rest of the context for a special examination, for special attention uh, this evening. And so this pericope begins at verse 29 and it goes to verse 32. Let me read it. Uh, Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares Yahweh. In vain I have struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, or perhaps it is congregation, uh, there's the traditional translation of that word, which is generation, but there's a lot of information from 
uh, surrounding cultures that the word actually can have the sense of a congregation that God is addressing the congregation. Yes, it's an evil generation, but it's a congregation that gathers to hear Jeremiah bring the word from God. And so he's directing his words to them, O you, O congregation, behold the word of Yahweh. Have I been a wilderness to Israel, or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or abide her attire? Naturally, that's the idea of um, knotted cords. Uh, I'll explain more of it a little bit later from now. But when a bride would get prepared for her wedding, she would not only be concerned about her bridal dress and the ornaments that would be on her bridal dress, but also they would have these knotted cords which would mark the number of days until the wedding day. And each day that would pass, the knotted cord, one more would be untied. So you know you're getting closer day by day. And that's the illusion that's here. Um, so the knotted cords uh, that would be preparatory to a wedding. Uh, yet my people, and of course the virgin bride cannot forget those things, will not forget those things. It's unthinkable that such things would be forgotten as a, a, a virgin bride is in preparation for her wedding day. Uh, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Now there's... Uh, a couple of different ways I began to approach the text and in the beginning it was I was just going to give you a bunch of lessons to ride from the text and I'm going to tell you some of those lessons right up front and then we're going to see something of the way in which uh, these lessons that we learn present a very um, strange set of circumstances of a people accusing God of wrong in the midst of this uh, this rib it's called it's a, it's a lawsuit where God's accusing them they, in fact they come back and they're coming to God with their own accusations the most unjust accusations God's accusations of course are true and right altogether and very just and then God it seems does respond to that uh, boldness that brazenness that these people in their sin would actually dare to come and accuse the Lord. Um, the first thing where I want to begin is the very lesson of the simple brazenness of sin. And that is expressed in that expression of defiance against God. Um, God has come to contend with them. Uh, you look at a scene in verse uh, 7, I believe it is. Um, I'm sorry, verse 9 of chapter 2. Uh, therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. And that Hebrew word for contend is that word rib. And that speaks of how God sends the prophets to bring the charges against them, to contend with them. To say, here is God's charges against you. So the prophet is in the midst of declaring God's charges against his people for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And in turn, at this point, they're declaring their own contention with God. For the Lord says, why do you contend with me? 
in the midst of my contentions with you, having my charges against you, why are you returning charges against me? It's a most unseemly act, and yet it's an act that we see in the hearts of sinners all the time. That sinners just do pervert justice, and they turn things upside down, and they begin to view things in the opposite way that reality would dictate. Um, They think they would be in the position of placing God in the dock. That's an old C.S. Lewis uh, lecture that he gave called God in the Dock. That the modern man, and the dock, of course, is the place of accusation in a British court. Uh, The accused would be in the dock, receiving the accusations that the law would bring against them. And uh, mankind in our pride now wants to turn the relationship around and say, Lord, you're in the dock. You're in the place of the accused because you've not lived up to your promises to us. And Again, it's the context in which the people have forsaken God. They've made idols for themselves. And the idols were vain things. They were nothings. These nothings could do nothing. They could do nothing to help the people when they were at their extremity and calling upon their gods. Verse 28 said, But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Now, this is not any kind of reflection of Israel's God you know, coming to his temple or uh, uh, coming to hear his voice from his prophets. They were abandoning those things, but they were making idols for themselves. And now in the time of their dilemma and their judgment, God says to them, let them arise. Let these false gods arise in verse 28, if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. God's reproving them for their idolatry and saying, in essence, these nothings that you are worshipping in the time of your need can do nothing to help you because they don't exist. You're calling upon nothings and you're leaving the one who can truly help you. But in the midst of their crisis, instead of saying, well, the fault is that these gods cannot help us and we need to turn back to the only God who can help us, the true and living God, they say, well, the futility of the, the answers to their prayers to their gods really is Yahweh's fault. It's Yahweh's fault. We're not getting an answer here. It's Yahweh's fault we're not getting a deliverance here. It's Yahweh's fault that uh, in the time of trouble, no one is arising to save us. But again, why would God save them when their dependence is upon other gods and their dependence is not upon him? And so, who's the guilty party here? Who has the right to contend with who? Well, this is a futile thing that the nation is doing, contending with God, putting God in the dock, saying we are his judges and we will judge his performance. No, God is the God who will judge their actions. He will weigh their hearts and their intents. And um, and so then the Lord just responds to this with the simple reality that you have transgressed against me. I've not transgressed against you. I've not broken promises. I've not 
broken the covenant. I've not stopped being a God to you. I've continued to give you air to breathe. I've continued to give you the rain that falls upon the just and the unjust and uh, my sun that shines upon the good and the evil. Um, I've continued goodness. I've continued love. I've continued faithfulness. You're the transgressors. You're the ones that have broken my laws. You're the ones who have transgressed against me, declares Yahweh. But then, as God is dealing with these brazen transgressors, these hard-hearted transgressors, these people that are so deeply sunk in the depths of sin that they would make such terrible judgments and reversal of reality as they're doing here, God's saying, I've been the one that's been attempting to remedy the situation. I've been endeavoring to correct you. I've been endeavoring to bring situations and circumstances into your life as a nation where you will realize the futility of these false gods and you will turn back to me. And so this time of trouble that's upon you, that if you were thinking at all, rightly, and and aware of reality, you would realize that this is part of my discipline that I have given to this nation as a faithful father to the nation. And I've struck your children, and the whole result of it has been no response. God says, in vain I've disciplined you. In vain I have struck the children of this nation. I have brought judgments upon them, and they took no correction. And not only did they take no correction, when I brought circumstances that ought to have awakened them to the reality of their folly, that they would have been brought to see, uh, our problem is we are worshiping gods that cannot help, and we're not worshiping the God who truly can help. And instead of going back to him humbled, instead of going back to him chastened and corrected, what they're doing is they're looking to destroy the very vehicles through which God is bringing his correcting word. And so that thought of their taking no correction, that all the discipline has come to nothing, it's not just it's come to nothing, you've actually reacted hostily to the messengers I've sent to you. you your own sword has devoured your prophets, is what the Lord says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who put to death the prophets... This nation has put to death the prophets that God sent to them. Remember that was um, Jeremiah. I'm sorry, Elijah's lament that uh, Ahab had put to death the prophets of Yahweh, and I alone am left. And then the Lord had to tell him, "I've actually reserved uh, was it 400 or 700? I forgot the exact number prophets that have not bowed the knee to Baal." Um, again, Elijah didn't know what he didn't know, but the hostility of Ahab towards the prophets of Yahweh was such that he put them to death. They've killed your prophets, and I alone am left, was Elijah's thought, because the prophets of Israel were being killed under the regime of uh, King Ahab. There's the stories that are told, and it's, uh, it's not a non-canonical book, uh, about uh, Manasseh, who was a very evil king for the most part in, uh, 
you know, I mentioned the, the book of the kings uh, declares all the sins of the kings of Judah the chronicles will look to rehabilitate them in some way well you find that with Manasseh uh, Manasseh, not, not anything good is said about him and the kings, but a lot of evil is reported in the chronicle, chronicles, but in the end of the, the story, there was repentance that he'd humbled himself before the Lord at the end of his life. But Manasseh was a very evil king, and among his crimes, at least as it was reputed by uh, certain uh, writings, is I can't recall the, the name of the writing, um, it was that Manasseh killed Isaiah, put Isaiah to death, put him in a in a, in a log and had it sawn in two. And, you know, the book of Hebrews speaks about probably that very, um, that very report. When in the chapter on the heroes of the faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, you see in Hebrews 11, have some of these heroes of the faith who quenched the power of fire verse 34 as the young men in the time of Daniel did in the Nebuchadnezzar's furnace escaped the edge of the sword were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war put foreign armies to flight women received back their dead by resurrection like the widow of Zarephath and Elijah rose and yet some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life others suffered mocking and flogging even chain and imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn in two that's probably a reference to that report of what Manasseh did to the prophet Jeremiah they were killed with the sword they went about in skins of sheep and goats and destitute, afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. It's the way in which the prophets of Israel were treated by the kings of Israel, by their own contemporaries. They were, re- they were hated, they were reviled, they were mocked, they were spat upon, they were put to death. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. Well, that's the depths of sin, is it not? That's the depths of rebellion. They contend with God. all the while they're transgressing against the very God that they are bringing up on charges as if God did some wrong again earlier on in the chapter God says in the words of verse 5 thus says the Lord what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me it's no wrong that God did all the wrongdoing is in the part of the people for no wrong that God did did the people go far from him. For no wrong that God did did they blame him for their own troubles and their own afflictions. For no wrong that God did did they come to contend with him. And yet contend with him they did. And they did not receive correction. They did not receive the chastening of the Lord in a way that brought them to repentance. And I should point out, in so doing, according to Hebrews chapter 12, they basically revealed that they were not children. For whom the Lord 
loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives no child is without chastening and if you are not chastened you're not uh, you're not a child you're an illegitimate child you're not a true child of the living God because the true child of the living God in the face of correction is, is corrected is penitent is humbled it's not that God's people do not sin we do but when correction comes we're, we're, we're humbled when correction comes there's a sense of shame with this crowd there was no shame there was no humbling they took their stand against God and they contended with him in the way that the prophet describes well God has something to say to this crowd in the face of their brazen rebellion against him in the face of the maddening actions of uh, blaming him and not being corrected by him and putting to death the prophets of the living God and in verse 21 the word of God comes to them O you, O congregation I think that's the proper sense of what Jeremiah is saying this congregation of people this congregation that might gather as if they were God's people as if they were God's children here's what you need to do you need to first of all behold the word of God and that's an interesting phrase isn't it usually the prophets will say hear the word of the Lord the word of the Lord is something we hear faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God but here they're told to behold the word of the Lord then to look at it then to see it but you see how God's words, the prophetic destruction that would come upon a wicked and disobedient people has in fact come, come to pass. This testimony of the reality of the God of chapter 1 who watches over his word to perform it. All around them, if only they would look up, pick up their eyes and see that God's word did not fail. God's word met them as God said it would meet them with God's hand heavy upon them God's judgment being towards them so they need to behold the way in which the word of God has been fulfilled towards them it's something that not only you hear with your ears but you see with your eyes when God's word truly does come to pass and then God says to them have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness now again, what's happening in the nation is that days of thick darkness have come. The threat of the Babylonian war machine against the nation is a reality. It's coming. Captivity's coming. Exile's coming. Slavery is coming. And these are conditions that Israel was in before in Egypt when they were made captive to the Egyptians and God led them out with a high hand and a mighty arm and brought them to himself and what did God do? well he brought them through the wilderness he brought them through that land of thick darkness that is described for us earlier on in uh, verse 6 when uh, the prophet says they did not say where is Yahweh who brought us up out of the land of Egypt who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits in a land of drought and deep darkness in a land that none passes through where no man dwells 
I mean, God was in the wilderness with the nation, not to be a wilderness to them, but to be their guide through the wilderness, to be their helper leading them through the wilderness. But yet they're saying God's the cause of the trouble. God's the cause of the problem. When all the history indicates, no, no, he's the answer to the troubles. He's the solution to the problem. He's not the cause. He's not brought thick darkness upon us. He's not brought this time of wilderness where the fruitful land has become a land not, not no longer inhabitable. That's not God's doing. That's the people's doing. That's their rebellion against the Lord bringing that condition about. It's their covenant unfaithfulness and the curse of God that comes upon them that's brought those things about. But God's not the wilderness. He's the guidance in the wilderness. He's the helper and leader of his people through the wilderness. That's God's history with the nation. That's what God could still be to them again in the midst of the crisis of the Babylonian onslaught and captivity that's to come. And the Lord then says, Why then do my people say, Let us return to the Lord. Let us come to God to lead us and guide us and provide for us and protect us and prosper us in these difficult days to come. That's not what they're saying though. Why do my people say, we're free. We're liberated. The word actually means we've cast off the restraints. It's the same idea that uh, we encountered before. When the people were declaring their independence from the Lord, that they were no longer under his dominion. They were no longer under his authority. They broke free to decide for themselves how they would live. That's still the sentiment of the people. To luxuriate in their supposed freedom, which is all a lie and delusion anyway. They're just making bonds for themselves to their sin and to the dominion of other nations that they made alliances with. They could have been free if they had turned back to God. But they think they're free, and they declare their freedom, and they declare that they will no longer come come to you. We will come no more to you. We won't come before God in worship. We won't hold to his ordinances and keep his... uh, his uh, stated meetings and times of worship that he has declared they won't any longer regard the sacred space and the sacred times that God has set apart for the worship of his people uh, before him again they're just settling in their rebellion and they're digging in their heels and they're saying we will not have this God to reign over us And then God still views the nation in all of this ugliness, in all of this horrific, rebellious disregard for him, their their failure to honor him, their disdain for him and his servants and his word. 
Yet he still thinks of them in terms of the virgin bride that he once knew. And he then comes up with an illustration from that very reality of the virgin bride not forgetting her ornaments. When she enters into union with her husband, she's careful that the gold and the silver that ornaments the bridal gown would be in place so that when she comes forth for her husband, she's properly adorned. She's wonderfully adorned. She's strikingly adorned. Every eye is upon that bride who prepares herself for her husband. And that's what Israel ought to have always been doing, to adorn herself for Yahweh, to be remembering him and approaching him um, with the garments of righteousness, with the garments that would show forth his praise, with the gold and silver of faithfulness. But of course it's unthinkable that a virgin bride who loves her husband, who is concerned to have this union with her husband, would forget the ornaments and come in burlap. Come to the wedding in sackcloth. Come to the wedding in jeans and t-shirt. Come to the wedding in, or, in, in attire that's wholly unappropriate. And come without the proper ornaments, but replace the ornaments of silver and gold for tin pots. I don't know. <laughs> just, a, just the thing that you would think is most inappropriate that a bride would adorn herself with. That's what Israel's doing. Can this virgin bride forget her braided knots? The braided knots that signal the countdown to the union, waiting that union, waiting that coming before the husband, coming before her beloved Again, that ought to be the continued attitude of the people of God. Again, we are to be a bride adorned for our husband. There's going to be a marriage supper to come. There's going to be a wedding to celebrate. There's going to be our entrance into his presence as a bride that's adorned for her husband. That's the picture of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. And there should be the counting down of the days until we arrive in glory, until we arrive in his presence, until... Uh, we come to that marriage supper until we come to that place of um, the union being declared before the onlooking world, the whole universe knowing that we are God's people and he is ours and he has faithfully kept his promises and faithfully brought us safely to um, his presence in a, in a new creation uh, that his people will enjoy with him forever. It's unthinkable that a bride who has any regard at all for her, the husband she is going to wed would forget those things, would lack those things. And yet my people, the Lord says, has forgotten me days without number. You know, the bride should be counting the days to her wedding. God's counting the days that the bride's been unfaithful. He's counting the days when the bride has strayed from him. He's counted the days when the bride has gone after other lovers, when they bowed down under every high hill and under every green tree. He's counted the days as a, a jilted lover counts down the days. There's an old song that I once heard that uh, 
speaks of a woman who's been jilted by her lover. And um, she's speaking about who was it that thought about time, that uh, numbered the, the days of every minute and the, uh, the, the uh, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the hours of every day and the days and the, uh, the seconds of every minute. And she concludes, it must have been someone who's been jilted in love because time then just goes so very slowly. When you think of the person that's left you, you think of the person that's gone in some other place and has broken your heart. And uh, you have all the time to think about, days without number, that Israel has carried on their rebellion and their unfaithfulness before the God who espoused her to himself as a bride. And the psalm was something of God speaking. I'm, again, God knows no pain. God is a God who is the perfectly blessed God. But yet he's expressing himself in that way of a jilted lover feeling deeply the pain of the bride that's departed from him. Counting the days and the hour that they've gone astray. Quite a picture. Quite a picture of the evil of a sinning nation. Quite a picture of the intent of the living God and the yearning of the living God. Even at this point, for this rebellious nation to fulfill her commitment as a faithful bride, to fulfill her commitment as a covenant partner with the living God. You think of the book of Hosea where God says, How can I give you up, O Israel? If only Israel had considered the one against whom they have sinned, the one against whom they have jilted him as a lover and forsaken him as the fountain of living waters and forsaken him as the source of all of their help forsaken him as the one who guides them in the midst of darkness and in the wilderness and leads them by the hand to a place of of safety and blessing and luxurious um, abundance and prosperity in a land flowing with milk and honey that's this God that's what God has been to them And the heart of the people should have been broken. Should have been broken at the first word of the prophet that came to them and called them into repentance. But they rejected that prophet day after day after day. God says later on in Jeremiah, I sent the prophets rising early to go to you to bring you my word. And you just rejected them. One after another, day after day. You should have repented when the correction began to come in terms of the chastisement of the troubles that the nations brought. And what did you do? You looked to make alliances with other nations rather than turn back to the living God. You looked to worship the gods of those nations in the hope that they would protect you. And you turned again away from the living God. Then you had the temerity to charge God with being at fault that you were walking in paths of your own destruction and paths that brought you so deeply into a time of trouble. This is a generation that still, God says, you need to see my word, behold my word. 
You need to recognize that the God whom you charge is innocent of all the charges. He's been nothing but goodness to you. Nothing but a faithful husband to you. You are the ones who have rejected him. You are the ones who have committed the unthinkable. But the wonder of wonders is that even when people commit the unthinkable, those actions are still not the unforgivable. There's still time for repentance. There's still space to turn back. There's still the offers of mercy that continue to come, even in the midst of such wickedness, in the midst of such rebellion, such blind resistance to the will of the God of heaven, such offense against a God of such goodness. Yet still, the goodness of God is given to those people still. Ultimately, one would hope to break their hearts. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Well, it's a striking picture that the prophet gives of the sin of the nation. It's a striking picture that he gives of the goodness of God, of the depths of the love of God to his people, something of the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God uh, to his people. And I trust we can come away from this just simply knowing that sin is unthinkable. <laughs> to persist in it, to fail to, return, to turn away from it, uh, to continue to court it, to go down that road of constant decline away from the presence of God when you have a God who's ever calling you back, a God who's ever offering hope and ever coming to you through the words of his prophets, calling upon you to seek him once again. Uh, may we always hear his voice calling us back. Wherever we've, we've strayed, it might not be terribly outward in sin's manifestation, but often it's those apostasies within. It's those backslidings of the heart. It's those failure to live in godly fear. It's the failure to have an active pursuit of God within our souls. And may we be hearing his voice ever calling us back uh, to a God who wants to have with us the kind of rich relationship that would be expressed in the greatness of the love of a faithful husband uh, to his bride. That God wants that love um, that he has displayed towards us to, to be reciprocated. Uh, so let's count the days until our meeting the bride and the wedding of the Lamb. Let's count the days and let us put on the ornaments and let us prepare for his coming and let us live in the light of his goodness and his faithfulness and his love. But let's commit our thoughts to him as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're, we're thankful we can look into the prophecy of Jeremiah and the way in which Jeremiah addressed the sins of his own generation, the congregation that came to hear him preach. And Lord God, we're thankful we can glean good from this. Uh, Lord, we are filled oftentimes with a sense of wonder that the people of Israel, a people of such promise, a people of such privilege, would so easily squander those privileges, would so easily uh, give themselves over to the worship of the Baals and the idols of the nations and turn away from the God who did them so much good and would still do them so much good and would choose rather to go through the perilous times once more of a wilderness of 
of darkness and of distress uh, without the God of Israel to lead them and guide them. Lord, help us not to commit the folly of sin. So clearly uh, delineated in the life of the nation of Judah. Help us to be a people who repent of the apostasies of our heart, the backslidings inwardly, and ever return to you with a vigorous commitment and allegiance and love and desire to be faithful to you to the end. So we're thankful if we could... Uh, be reminded of the call of your grace back to you and the greatness of the love that calls us into the intimacy of union and communion with you through Christ our Lord. And we're thankful for the Lord's Day that we can again call to mind those realities and have our minds and hearts refreshed in the light of who you are, in the light of what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus, in the light of what you uh, call us to consider and think and do. We're thankful for this day that we could spend in your presence. And we pray that the good of this day will redound to your glory. And in the days that are, the week that are before us, we, more, we walk more conscientiously before you, more wholeheartedly with you. So receive our praise and thanksgiving for your blessings on another Lord's Day. Dismiss us with your blessing and strengthen us in your grace as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.